Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast, where your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai, were both neurologists, scientists, and public health advocates. Last week, we shared the first of two preview episodes from our brand new podcast, Your Brain On. The first episode was all about the neuroscience of New Year's and resolutions. The second preview episode explores the neuroscience of dry January and giving up alcohol. As we said last week, we're so proud of what we've achieved with the Brain Health Revolution podcast, and we couldn't be more excited to take neuroscientific storytelling to the next level with Your Brain On. Next week, we'll be releasing the first episode of Your Brain On. So on February 14th, be sure to search Your Brain On via your favorite podcast app or find links to the show on our website or social media. Until then, we hope you enjoy the second installment. Welcome to Your Brain On, a podcast about the neuroscience of everything. We're your hosts, Drs. Aisha and Dean Sherzai, and we've shaken up a stirring story about how drinking affects our brain just in time for dry January, a time of year when tens of millions of people around the world give up alcohol for the month. Ready to pour over the neuroscience of booze on the brain? This is Your Brain On Dry January. Alcohol may be a social lubricant, but in the brain, it causes friction, interfering with the brain's communication pathways and disrupting the delicate balance of neurotransmission. When you drink, the alcohol is absorbed into your bloodstream through the linings of your stomach, where it spreads into your tissues and within five minutes, it reaches your brain. In about 20 minutes, your liver begins to process the alcohol, metabolizing it in an attempt to reduce the toxic effects. A typical liver can break down one ounce, 30 milliliters of alcohol per hour. The average liver can process just under two beers per hour. This varies widely, depending on a person's age, body type, how hydrated they are, and even factors like emotional state or how carbonated drinks were. The amount of alcohol present in your blood is measured as a blood alcohol level or BAC. When your BAC exceeds the rate at which your body can metabolize the alcohol, that's when you begin to get intoxicated. And we use quote unquote intoxicated so interchangeably to mean drunk that we may overlook the obvious fact that yes, intoxication is your body literally not being able to handle the toxins entering it through the alcohol. There's the first stage of intoxication, subclinical intoxication. You're not visibly drunk, but your behaviors and mood will be altered. Your reaction times will start to slow. Most people enter this phase after just one drink. Then comes the second stage, euphoria. We're back to the brain now, which begins releasing dopamine, a chemical associated with pleasure. You may be feeling a little more relaxed and confident, but your ability to reason and remember will start to become impaired. After euphoria comes excitement, when your BAC exceeds the legal driving limit. In your brain, your occipital, temporal, frontal, and parietal lobes are impacted, causing things like blurred vision, slurred speech, erratic movements, and short-term memory loss. Fourth is confusion. 
Your cerebellum, vital for coordination, starts to lose control of your body, leading to disorientation, falls, and blackouts. Signs of alcohol poisoning will start to creep in around BAC levels of 0.25%. You might go into a stupor, pass out, or suffocate. At 0.35%, it's possible that you could go into a coma. And at 0.45% or above, the brain can no longer manage vital bodily functions, and you're at risk of death. To take all of this back to a neurological context, when you take a sip of alcohol, it travels through your bloodstream to your brain and it starts to interact with various neurotransmitters, the brain's chemical messengers. Among these are glutamate and aspartate, the main excitatory neurotransmitters, which stimulate neurons to continue passing messages along the nervous system and through the brain. Other neurotransmitters are responsible for everything from our mood to our motor skills. Serotonin, often called the happy chemical, contributes to feelings of happiness and well-being. When alcohol increases serotonin levels temporarily, you can experience an euphoric buzz. Dopamine, another reward chemical, gives you a sense of pleasure and motivation. It pushes the brain's like button, and when alcohol is involved, it can lead to addictive behavior because the brain starts to crave that feeling of reward. Then there's GABA, or gamma aminobutyric acid. acid. I always love that, that term. Gamma amino... Sorry. Say it she I got excited kind of there. Yeah, okay. Sorry, say it again. Gamma aminobutyric acid, the chief inhibitory neurotransmitter. Alcohol amplifies GABA's effects, which is why those initial drinks can feel so calming. But as GABA increases, the brain's energy-driven activities slow down. Your speech may start to slur and your movements may become clumsy. Alcohol sedative effects can be so strong that they shut down areas of the brain which control vital functions. As we mentioned, in extreme cases, this can lead to alcohol poisoning. Now let's talk about glutamate. It's the yin to GABA's yang, an excitatory neurotransmitter that normally keeps you alert and processes information quickly. But when alcohol is in the system, it inhibits glutamate's release. This suppression leads to cognitive impairment, like slowed reaction time and blurred memory. Alcohol and trying to be the life of a party, mm -hmm. it actually dampens our brain's natural party planner, glutamate. The result? a less responsive, more inhibited brain, at least temporarily. All this neurotransmitter turmoil can cause short-term effects like mood swings, impulsive behavior, and blackouts. But don't forget the morning after. The notorious hangover, when the brain is recovering from a chemical roller coaster. And in the long term, chronic alcohol use can alter the chemistry and structure of the brain. As our brains try to adapt to the constant interference, we can develop tolerance, dependencies, and unfortunately, many brain-related health diseases. The way alcohol affects the brain is a complex interplay of chemicals and reactions that can influence everything from our emotions to our ability to even walk in a straight line. To understand how we discovered this, let's take a time machine trip through the history of alcohol's role in society and its impact on the brain through the ages. First, ancient Egypt. 
a civilization that brewed beer not just for enjoyment, but as a remedy for ailments. Imagine a prescription for beer. Now let's rewind further, back to 7000 BCE in China, where residues of a fermented beverage made from rice, honey, and fruit have been found. Fast forward again to 3000 BCE, and we find the Sumerians celebrating Ninkasi, the goddess of brewing. Skip ahead a couple of millennia to ancient Greece. The symposium was more than a social gathering. It was a center of philosophical debates and political discussions, all held over cups of wine, which they believed could stimulate the mind and unleash the tongue. Aristotle, the famous philosopher, wrote on occasion about alcohol's effects on the brain, including loss of judgment and eventual health issues, particularly in relation to sexual health. A couple more millennia in the future, perhaps the first documented case of using alcohol to purposefully alter consciousness. The Aztecs used pulque, a milky fermented beverage in religious ceremonies, believing it was a gift from the gods that could bring visions and even connect them to the divine. And let's not overlook the Vikings, whose sagas are steeped in mead and ale. They believed that in Valhalla, their afterlife, there was a giant goat whose udders provided an endless supply of beer awaiting them. Now let's zoom to the Middle Ages, when monks became master brewers and many people drank beer instead of water because the process of making alcohol killed the bacteria that caused prevalent waterborne diseases. Then there's the Renaissance, a time of enlightenment, but also of imbibement. Aquavita, Latin for water of life, was a distilled concoction revered for its healing properties. Although Renaissance-era scientific writings feature some of the earliest acknowledgments of what we now know as addiction. That's so interesting. The 18th century brought the gin craze to England, where the spirit was so cheap and accessible, it led to an epidemic of drunkenness. This was one of the first times society began to truly grapple with the social and health implications of widespread alcohol abuse. This takes us to the temperance movement of the 19th century, a pushback against rampant alcohol consumption. Now fast forward to the roaring 20s, prohibition era. While the speakeasies were hiding their bottles, neuroscientists were uncovering the hidden effects of alcohol on the brain, setting the stage for a century of research. And during Prohibition, while the US was drying out, or at least pretending to, scientists were making wet their beakers and slides, exploring just how alcohol was interacting with the brain, influencing behavior, and affecting health. These historical observations set the stage for modern neuroscience, providing a treasure trove of insights that we're still trying to decode today. With each epic, from ancient brews to the modern neuroscience, alcohol has touched our brains and our societies in profound ways. And with that, we raise our glasses to the history that has brought us intriguing insights and, of course, cautionary tales. We should be clarify that dry January isn't about climate change, right? <laughs> That's Dr. Howard Rankin, an incredible psychologist who has done remarkable work in the realm of addiction and behavior. Or at least not meteorological climate change, maybe personal climate change. Dr. Rankin has also published many books and scientific articles on a broad range of topics, including addiction, human behavior, and artificial intelligence. His insights on the opportunities and pitfalls of dry January 
January are enlightening. The notion that January might be a good time to minimize or stop your drinking. And the concept is a good one. I like the idea. But as we all know, changing habits is tricky, challenging, and involves a lot of psychological investment. Many years ago, I was on The View talking about New Year's resolutions, saying that making a resolution to change a long-standing habit just because it's January 1st, the problem with that is January 2nd. Changing habits is very misunderstood, as you as neurologists understand. And I've been in this business 40 plus years. I started in my career at the Institute of Psychiatry in London, addiction research unit, and I stayed there 10 years. Up until that time, early mid-70s, there really wasn't a lot of psych research in addictions. Most of it was either medical or sociological. We started looking at measuring dependence. What is dependent? What are the cues for temptation? How do you help people manage temptation? So I've seen the evolution of that. Some of the myths about changing a long-term habits are an obstruction for people who really want to change. Yeah, absolutely. What is it in particular that's unique about alcohol dependence and addiction to alcohol? Well, that's an interesting question, yes. So, so we're looking at a couple of things here. One is the impact of anything you might be taking, like alcohol or drugs. But then there's the impact on, as you know, the neurology and your mental state, independent of anything that might influence, like alcohol. In alcohol, you've really got a very powerful chemical influencing the body, and then you've got the whole habit structure influencing it too, and that makes it incredibly complicated, as it does with smoking, with drugs, and even eating, where people are taking in something that potentially is influencing them and is a cue interaction between what's going on in their body, how that influences their mind, etc., etc. Absolutely. It's a unique drug in that sense that it, it affects dopamine directly as well as a, it's a downer. It's a paradoxical uh, drug that, that can really be difficult to come off of. Uh, so there is that physiological side, but the narrative side of alcohol is a central cultural thing for millennia now. But uh, alongside that, there's the individual differences that also play into this dependence and addiction. Certain personality types have greater proclivity for dependence. And the reason I bring this up, especially in the context of dry January, is because it's important for people to know their strengths and weaknesses and operate with that in mind. There are things that I am very good at, but there are certain things that I shock myself, given this person that's a behavioral neurologist that knows the pathology, the neurology, the dopamine pathways, the serotonin, the GABA and all that. And yet I can't control it as well. Mm. And that just fascinates me. Of course, part of that is genetic, but I think part of it is personality types that are developed early on. Do we have to be aware of certain personality types that have greater proclivity for dependence? It's an interesting, interesting question. Just to, let's take one subtype that I think is actually valuable, and it comes from John Bowlby's attachment theory, which I think started in the 1940s by a British psychologist called John Bowlby. And Bowlby's theory was about attachment, that in the early years of childhood, your interaction with a significant people in your life is going to determine how you think about yourself and yourself in relation to others. He came 
came up with three types. Secure attachment. The child gets whatever it needs. It gets it quickly. It's loved. And that child will feel very comfortable. It will feel better about itself and the relationship with other people. The second one is anxious attachment, where the needs are met inconsistently. The person grows up to be second-guessing, am I going to get this? And they get into a lot of doubt and second-guessing about their relationship with other people. And then the third one is avoidant, where the interaction is traumatic and nasty. They don't believe in people. They just become incredibly independent in a very negative way. And that model actually works really well. If you think about dry January. Let's suppose somebody's secure. You probably have a sense of confidence, self-control. Yeah, let me try. I think I can do this. An anxious person will be wondering, can I do this or not? You might actually be looking for the alcohol to calm them down. And then the avoidant is, I'm going to do what I want. I'm not going to let anyone tell me what to do. I don't trust anyone. I don't know that anyone's actually ever looked at those personality types in relation to addiction and alcoholism, but I would suspect there's a reasonable relationship. I can definitely see the relationship and the susceptibility to fall back. It's a difficult journey for the person who's alcoholic trying to get out of that, 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 that addiction. So if I have to extrapolate it, it would be if they're anxious type, they're going to fall prey to their anxiety, which is pulling them back to their baseline. And if they're the avoidant type, the fear and, and, and anxiety of accepting anything that's external or any process that's external, and they're going to fall onto their own beliefs about themselves, their own pathway. So I, that's such a fascinating way to look at this. It really is, yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, the people are not, they don't fall into cleanly into, um, you know, no, these no, three categories. Everybody has some yeah. element of some of these, but in totality, though, it's a spectrum, I would presume. Yes, yeah. And I'm. this is a true story that happened while I was on the addiction research unit. My superior, Professor Ray Hodgson, and I, we were working on new treatments for alcoholics, and we had invited people to come and give feedback on you know, what we were suggesting. One Friday afternoon, this guy comes in, dressed very well, the ideal London exec. We talked to him a bit. He's sitting down. He opens up his case. He pulls out half a bottle of vodka, lugs it down in like 30 seconds, puts it down and says, treat that. Wow. I think he was probably avoidant <laughs> based on yes. the categories we've just used. But it was, it was a really interesting lesson about how you approach people about giving up habits and addictions. When somebody came in, they were wanting to quit smoking. My first question was, well, why the hell do you want to quit? I could say, oh, yeah, of course, that's a great idea. You know, it's bad for them. They've heard that a gazillion times. And what I think doesn't matter. What matters is what they think. Do they have motivation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as a point of preparation, I mean, dry January, if, if it's good for anything, it's about the idea of preparing, but preparing properly, not, oh, this is a diet. This is uh, avoiding alcohol. None of those ever work. So we, the external preparations would be creating a household where the alcohol doesn't exist. The internal one, ones would be, what are the things that are my triggers, the things that are always failing me, or the things that, that make me more susceptible, my anxiety, my fear. So how would somebody prepare both externally and internally? We talked a little bit about the external stuff, the avoided places where there's alcohol, friends that drink all the time, things of that nature, yeah. There are really two strategies that are overlap. One is avoidance, and then ultimately there's confrontation of tempting cues. But when we're talking about dry January, we're really talking about avoidance. We're talking about don't drink. Keep away from the cues and situations where you're likely to encounter alcohol. 
So you experience a month of no alcohol. What are the cues that make you use? Sorry, that was poetic, but I didn't mean to be. <laughs> Identify not only what those are, but what are you going to do when you find yourself in them? It doesn't have to be incredibly complicated. It might be, oh, you know what? I'll go for a walk 10 minutes or 15 minutes, or I'll read a book, or I'll call my friend. You have to know what are the cues for your drinking and how are you going to deal with them? And for dry January, that's a great start. Now, if ultimately you're saying, I need to beat this addiction forever, eventually you'll move into, how do I confront these temptations and not drink? In the end, ultimately, that's the way I think you break this neural infrastructure in your head. Because as we know, when you are really well practiced in a habit, whether that you're a great sports athlete or a great alcoholic, your brain takes over, it's automatized, and you may be aware of what you're doing, but you're not in control of it. What's really interesting when you see people that that neural infrastructure breaks down, they start to say things like, the other day I reached out for that whiskey and then I thought, wait a minute, what am I doing? Consciousness was now in control enough to control their behavior. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah, it's all absolutely. about being strategic here as well. As is discussed often, there is a few seconds between the desire to engage in an action and the action itself. It's within those few seconds where one can train oneself to stop. But instead of relying on making that decision over and over again so many times during the day, it's best to have a strategy of what are you going to do when you're faced with it? One good thing to do at the beginning of the day, spend a, a minute or two thinking about your day, thinking about the situations, because then you might think, oh, yeah, it's so-and-so birthday today. Perhaps somebody's going to bring in drinks. What am I going to do? It allows you, first of all, to anticipate, which is important, and secondly, prepare. Okay, when that happens, I'm going to go to the restroom or go home early or whatever it is. Visualization actually turns out to be, I personally believe, very powerful. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah because it enables you to think about a situation and see yourself acting differently without actually being in the temptation at the time. Right. Yeah. And so that's a really great segue between avoidance and confrontation. I, I fully agree with you that it's not even about dry January. It's about uh, that mentality every morning of waking up with a strategy, with a plan, with impediments, with propagators of behavior in mind, such a powerful tool. I, I'm fully on board with that. Yeah, yeah, it is important. And when we come to, okay, here's a month where my goal is not to drink anything. Okay, what happens when after 10 days you do have alcohol? That is really critical. Yeah. Because there's a complexity there. As somebody supporting somebody trying to go abstinent for a month, if they come and say, oh, messed up last night, I had a couple of drinks, what do you say to them? Now, I think what you say to them is, hey, this is a journey. This is progress, not perfection. If you get to the end of the month and you tell me you drank twice, whereas previously you'd normally drink 15 times, I'd say, hey, pretty good job. You're moving in the right direction. Problem is, if you say that, it sounds like you're encouraging people. It's okay. It's okay to have a drink. No, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm saying you have to look at the big picture. And one of the things that I've seen happen so many times is people are doing pretty well. And then they, quotation marks, slip and they convince themselves, oh, I'm back to square one. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Mm -hmm. Look at your progress. If in December you drink, you know, every day or 50% of the time, in January 10%, pretty good. Mm -hmm. Give yourself credit for the wins, which tends not to happen.
Yeah. Yeah. Give yourself credit. Each day you do not drink. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Dean always says, uh, there's no failure. There's only data. Yeah. I, I think it's uh, anytime you have set a goal and you've done a good job of strategizing the impediments, the propagators of behavior and all of that stuff. And then that pattern of outcome is broken. I don't call it failure. When I did X, I would be able to avoid alcohol. But I realized that there's this other impediment that circumvents, that actually sabotages. Now I just learned something about myself, my situation, my relationship with data, with my relationship with the world. So there's no failure. I feel like dry January should be used as an opportunity to prepare people for February, which happens to be one of the most alcohol forward holidays of the year. So you have Super Bowl where people drink tons of beer and then you have Valentine's Day so where people point. wine and dine. Yeah. And just, just using January to get to know yourself, your cues and your behaviors for February and so on and so That's forth. That's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Howard, you've worked with a lot of alcohol addicts. Have you seen any positive change of how alcohol is acknowledged in the society? I don't personally think that anything has significantly changed. Alcohol is really dangerous. It's still positively valued. It's still seen as oh, a wonderful, fun thing to engage in with minimal risk. So I don't, I don't think it's changed significantly, let's put it that way. What are your views on that? I mean, do, do you see anything? No, especially in schools and colleges, the prevalence of alcohol abuse and binge drinking and all that comes with it is just massive in colleges. Yeah. And and that has permanent long-term consequences. We talk about dementia and all that, but the pathology starts earlier in your 20s and 30s. And so I don't think that has changed. I think one of the things that can come out of dry January is uh, a lot of times in, in, from a marketing perspective, we do these campaigns that are just so superficial that actually they do harm. Because yeah. they're not truly addressing the underlying problem. And I worry that something like Dry January can be empty campaign unless people have conversations. That's why we have you, a brilliant psychologist, mm -hmm. speaking to the broader concept of avoidance is not just about a month. It's not about just uh, saying, just say no. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and also drinking as you get older is not a good idea. True. Seniors drinking on a heavily or relatively heavily, as we get older, we have less fluid and water in our body. So the same drink is actually more concentrated as you get older. It's having more impact on you. Tie that in with things like falling and... Increased risk of dementia for that yeah. matter. Yeah, absolutely. No question. Definitely. So given all of this information, what are some of the resources and some of the services that people can lean on um, to aid their journey towards sobriety during dry January and beyond that? If you are really struggling with this, I do think it's valuable to get help, either to a self-help group or to a physician or to a psychologist or a coach who works in this field and knows about addiction, knows about how to capture somebody's motivation, really, rather than just lecture them. For some people listening, not really dependent, they might do it and find it relatively easy. And then there'll be people who surprisingly find themselves, this is very difficult to do, I can't do this. Yeah. And if you're at that state, that's the time to reach out for some help and guidance in guiding you through creating a strategy that works, understanding what underpins your drinking, giving you strategies to deal with it, and giving you support. I think support is really critical. When you see other people who've been successful and have gone through that journey, it took me eight months to, you know, whatever, and then another, you know, and here I am five years later, I finally quit, and it's great. Hearing that can be very inspiring and motivating.
There's a very interesting study that I would like to tell you guys about. In a recent study, researchers from the University of Pennsylvania have shed light on the potential risk to brain health from alcohol consumption levels often deemed moderate, such as a few beers or glasses of wine each week. This extensive analysis, involving data from over 36,000 adults, has uncovered a concerning link. Even light to moderate drinking is associated with a decrease in overall brain volume. The study found that this relationship intensifies with higher level of alcohol intake. Particularly notable is the impact observed in 50-year-olds. For individuals in this age group, an increase in average alcohol consumption from one unit roughly equivalent of half a beer to two units, which could be a full beer or a glass of wine per day, is correlated with brain changes comparable to aging two years. And increasing the intake from two to three units at the same age is like the brain aging an additional three and a half years. These findings remain significant even after removing heavy drinkers from the analysis. The findings suggested the greatest benefits of reducing alcohol intake might be in those who currently drink the most. These significant findings were reported in the Journal of Nature Communications, highlighting the need for a re-evaluation of what constitutes safe levels of alcohol consumption, especially when it comes to brain health. Remarkable. Now let's dive into the cerebral deep end. In spite of the persistent idea that one or two drinks is harmless, the World Health Organization released a statement in January 2023 emphasizing that no level of alcohol consumption is safe when it comes to human health. One of the best known conditions associated with alcohol-related brain damage is Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, a two-stage disorder caused by a deficiency of thiamine, also known as vitamin B1. Without immediate treatment, Wernicke's can lead to Korsakoff psychosis, characterized by severe memory loss and confabulation, where the individual unconsciously makes up stories to fill memory gaps. And then there's hepatic encephalopathy, a decline in brain function caused by severe liver disease. Toxins like ammonia that are normally cleared by a healthy liver cross the blood-brain barrier, causing cognitive and behavioral issues. Alcohol-related brain damage can also accelerate the onset of other neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or exacerbate their progression due to the compound effect on the brain structure and chemistry. It's important to remember that alcohol doesn't just hit and run. It can leave a lasting imprint on the brain. Imaging studies have shown that individuals with alcohol use disorder often have reduced brain volume, particularly in the regions critical for cognition and decision-making. But don't be scared by this. Be informed. Knowledge is power, and understanding the potential impact of alcohol can help us make more informed choices about our health and life. I love this. And this is where modern neuroscience steps in, offering hope through advances in neuroimaging and pharmacology that can aid in early detection and treatment. Now we've explored how drinking alcohol affects the brain, but the title of the episode is Your Brain on Dry January. So what happens when you stop drinking? You do, uh, of course, eventually experience the opposite of the negative impacts we've discussed so far. Clearer thinking, faster reactions, more reliable memory, sharper focus, slowed neurodegenerative processes. And those are just the more direct benefits. There are myriad more unlocked by the brain's interplay with other organs organs which function better when you minimize or totally avoid alcohol consumption. But this doesn't happen overnight. 
quitting drinking can be a miserable, difficult process because you're forcing your brain to unlearn certain tolerances it's built up over a long period of alcohol intake, no matter how excessive or moderate the quantities. The brain's ability to flexibly adapt and readapt is called neuroplasticity. One example of neuroplasticity in the context of sudden abstinence from commonly consumed substances, such as that pursued during dry January, happens in the amygdala, a small almond-shaped part of the brain associated with processing emotions, particularly fear. Drinking even a little bit regularly over a long period of time can suppress the amygdala, causing us to become accustomed to reduced sensitivity to threats and stress. So when you cut alcohol out, your amygdala can go into overdrive, leading to a phenomenon called hyperkatifia. Hyperkatifia is an intensified susceptibility to the kinds of negative emotional reactions that alcohol suppresses in the amygdala, like anxiety and irritability. Something similar happens at a physical level too. Earlier, Aisha mentioned GABA, the chief inhibitory neurotransmitter, which helps regulate activity in the motor cortex and fine-tune our movements. When our brains get used to the heightened inhibitory effect of GABA and we stop drinking, we experience the reverse effect heightened excitability, which is why shakes, tremors, and in some extreme cases, seizures are common symptoms of withdrawal. For individuals with the heaviest dependencies on alcohol, those seizures and emotional symptoms like anxiety and depression can be lethal. A more gradual detoxification supported by professionally administered treatment is the best solution in these cases. Dry January typically encourages a hard stop at the start of the year, but that's not mandatory. There's nothing stopping anyone from using the entirety of dry January as a month-long transition period. If anything, that actually makes more sense for the brain than an abrupt 30-day abstinence that may or may not carry beyond the social expectations of January. Uh, I would prefer if this is also done with, uh, with a friend or under supervision, just for safety's sake. Absolutely. On the other matter of social expectations, we discussed in our previous episode how the new year can, with the right habit-building structure, be the perfect jumping-off point of major lifestyle changes. Reminiscing about the past year in a social environment can weave a complex web of emotions, reward signals, and hormones like dopamine and oxytocin, which become entangled with aspirations and ambitions like quitting drinking. Oxytocin, which is associated with social bonding, is known to have a neurochemical anti-stress effect which may help negate some of the negative symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. The unfortunate reality for those grappling with a more serious reliance on alcohol is this. Addiction often comes hand in hand with social isolation. Thankfully, support groups exist through which one might find the kind of shared understanding, peer accountability, and positive reinforcement that can aid in easing the brain through some of the most challenging initial days, weeks, and months of recovery. We all have the power to start making changes in our lives, no matter what month it is. So you have the facts. Now let's think about actions. We believe in a shift in perspective from drinking responsibly, as is often said, to being conscious that any and all alcohol consumption carries risk. Recognizing your brain's limits is crucial. It's not just about avoiding rough hangovers or embarrassing memories from the night before. It's about safeguarding your brain's longevity. The less you tax it with alcohol, 
the more robust it remains. The concept of binge drinking can be particularly destructive, sending a tidal wave of stress along your neural pathways. This isn't about moderation, it's about minimalism in our approach to alcohol. Pay attention to your brain's signals. Is recalling information becoming more challenging? Do you notice a lag in your reactions? Regular consultations with medical professionals will help you understand these signals and guide you towards healthier choices. When it comes to social dynamics, choose environments that respect your decisions to limit or eliminate alcohol. Peer influence is potent. If you decide to have an occasional drink, ensure that it's in a controlled setting. Plan your journey home. It's not just about protecting your neurons, it's about societal responsibility as well. Let's also normalize discussing alcohol use. Open dialogue can dismantle taboos and promote a culture of health consciousness. Adopting a proactive stance on alcohol can do more than just conserve your brain health. It has a profound effect on society in general. What a journey we've had today, from neurotransmitters to neurodegeneration, all through the lens of a glass. Thanks for listening to Your Brain On. We hope you enjoyed the first two episodes of Your Brain On, our brand new podcast about the neuroscience of everything. As we mentioned earlier, next week, we're releasing the first episode of Your Brain On on February 14th. Look up Your Brain On through your favorite podcast app or find links to the new show on our website or social media. Thank you for listening.